Hey folks, Alex Shaw here with your Risk Performance Podcast. We are settled in at Pinehurst, sitting here with Jimbo Redman and Tom Van Dorn. Hey from, doing, Alex? From the from the from Caddy Masters, or who used to be at Caddy Masters. I used to be at Caddy Masters. Good afternoon. Thanks for sharing some time with me. Yeah. Th- thank you. It's fun. We got this little room kind of off to the side. And I think Chad Duke is is he's my roommate. And I think he had to run out of town so i might have this whole place to my right. to myself today good to have a big room tom welcome back to your former uh home in pinehurst north carolina yeah thank you we actually had our headquarters here uh for about uh, seven or eight years back in nine years ago 2006 i think we left here got here probably in 95 or so 96 yeah. Okay. So, were, well, how long did you been? In, when did you start working at Caddy Master? I started in Caddy Master in uh, September of 1996, after having an opportunity to meet with the uh, founder of the company for a couple months, and I bothered him with questions for a couple weeks at a time, and uh, and finally made a decision to come to work for him in September. So, when you say you bothered him with questions, what type of, of questions were those? Well, he had just started a business. He was a if I don't mind saying, a young 26-year-old snot-nosed kid just out of college that was <laughs> working at, uh, working, he wouldn't mind that, uh, working at Outback and uh, thought he had a better way of doing things with this, uh, with this caddy business and uh, had started it with a 4 by 6 note card in his back pocket with uh, 10 names of caddies and phone numbers on it. And uh, here we are 20 years later, uh, and he did have a better idea. Yes, he and, did. And and you were um you were a former professional caddy who worked on the tour and uh, so how how did you perceive that because there's sort of two ways you could go like you're full of crap or, or, but you were intelligent enough or or um insightful enough to go man he does have a good idea to, despite the snot on his nose. Yeah, I made a, a big decision in in I think February of 1993 to sell my business, buy a motorhome, and go caddy on tour. I had a chance to do that through a very good friend in college uh, that was a professional golfer. He's now in the Hall of Fame in New Jersey and played on tour for seven years and had a number of students on the LPGA tour and asked me if if I'd help one of them out one week, and it turned into a four-year career. And uh, met the owner of the, the caddy company, about three years into that, through a mutual friend with the uh, with my college friend that uh, was a professional golfer, and made a decision after a number of questions that yeah, I think he's got a, a good idea here and and an opportunity. Caddying had been around for four hundred years, and uh, basically they were the most unaccountable individuals that a <laughs> client would would spend their day with. And uh, he had a better idea, and 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 we took off with this and. Lo and behold, luckily, uh, one of our, our first client was a place called Augusta National. And once we signed that contract in and started in October 1996, things kind of mushroomed, and, and we ended up with over 50 clients in 18 states and four countries. Holy cow. Yeah. So when did, when did you guys start working with Scott? You started in 1996. Yeah. And we, what was your role, I guess, and how has that changed since you've been there? I've imagined it hadn't been the same. Yeah, I've done anything and everything that the company needed at that time, like the other individual that was working for Mike at the time. Uh, we were a, we didn't have a specific title, but whatever needed being to get done, we got it. Jumped in and got it done. Uh, ended up with Scott Insurance in uh, 2000, 
four in October, I think it was, we really didn't know anything about the insurance world, what we needed to do from a business standpoint. Bought our insurance policy, put a nice label on it, and filed it away in the drawer, shut the drawer, and, and that was it. And lo and behold, uh, three or four years later, we had two horrendous uh, work comp claims that have spiraled out of control in the state of California. Uh, both were approaching a million dollars in losses. One of them was as fraudulent as it can get without management. Not much we could do about it at that time. In fact, one of those claims ended up with a work comp prescription, prescription drug overdose death. Wow. And we were to the point where we couldn't find anybody to insure us, period. Um, through a mutual friend in the city of Pinehurst, um, we met Brett Greaves right up, right up the street in Scott Insurance and basically changed our, uh, uh, our business model and went to work with Scott Insurance, which is pi- quite possibly could have saved our business. Mm. We, were, we were in dire straits. We were in 15 state pools because no one would insure us which is about as big a nightmare as any business owner could ever have. Yeah. And uh, I jumped in and opened my big, uh, big mouth at one of our meetings. <laughs> and, and, and rather than, than let Mike go out and spend $7,500 or $100,000 to get somebody in from the outside to fix that, I said, well, why don't you let me try that, and we'll save that money for a while and see how it goes. And in came Scott Insurance and Jimbo and Claudia and the team at Scott. And uh, uh, the rest is kind of history. Yeah, we, uh, do you recall, uh, just kind of as a sidebar, when you mentioned a uh, uh, prescription drug overdose that ended in a death, do you recall what drug that was specifically? Yeah, no, I don't. When, when I opened my mouth and, and, and offered to try to fix this thing, I had to start chasing down work comp claims from 30 sites in 14 states at the time, uh, and we barely knew how to fill out a state first report mm. at that time, let alone an accident investigation or follow-up work or communication with the injured. Uh, we, we literally knew... Nothing, and I mean nothing when I say nothing. Uh, and uh, I, I got that information from an adjuster once I was trying to chase the claim down and don't remember it this time. It was back in 2001, I think, when this happened. Uh, but I don't remember the specific drug or, or, or the specific incidents uh, of the case. What was the uh, – describe the caddy culture. Um, obviously, you all had a business. You all were – or adding a lot of employees and growing rapidly and dealing with a lot of different sites. And, I mean, we deal a lot in mainstream sort of manufacturing and construction. And, you know, the caddy business is just sort of, well, one, it's, you know, when you talk to people on the surface, they don't immediately go, wow, that's a high-risk business. But what's the caddy culture like? Yeah, it was. Uh, that's a very good question, and I can tell you when we got into this, uh, we were asking that question ourselves with some of the different clients that we uh, contracted with early on. We had some takeover programs that were very, very challenging and very difficult, one of them being in Augusta uh, that had had their own independent contractor run caddy program for 54 years, I think, at the time, uh, since the early 30s. Uh, obviously, they were set in their ways. Uh, it was about as unaccountable as any group of individuals uh, could ever be. When we got that contract, Mike and I sat down and interviewed individually 225 caddies uh, and ended up keeping about 170 of those. Uh, and it was, needless to say, very, very challenging for the first two or three years. Um, uh, the culture was... 
unaccountable. Some days they'd show up, some days they wouldn't. Some days they'd show up in no shape to work. Some days they were okay to work. Uh, they were usually more uh, more uh, interested in getting their hands on their money for the day and, and heading out and uh, trying to spend that money before they came to work the next day. Mm. And we spent uh, uh, three or four really hard years trying to change that culture and change the mindset that they had uh, and getting them to trust us. After 50 years of doing things their way, uh, they saw us come in and, and they, were skepti- uh, they were about as skeptical as any, anything they could ever be involved in. They just, they, they had nothing, they wanted nothing to do with us. It was very challenging. What were some of the things that you recall, and I know many of these uh, small things are, are intangibles that are tough to describe, but to change a, an existing culture like that, what were some of the things you guys worked on or put into place? One of the things we did early on uh, was create an accountability that required each of those 175 to 200 caddies be at a spot meeting on a daily basis. And we would start the day off talking about uh, the positives of the day. Uh, We had a safety area that we talked about with three different areas of safety on a daily basis. Uh, We watched eyes roll back in their heads for a year before they really started to believe who we were and see the difference. Uh, But we decided to meet with them on a daily basis, try to create a relationship of trust and that we were there for them. And uh, they may not like the change today, but going forward and tomorrow that the change was going to be something that would be favorable for them. And lo and behold, it probably took three solid years, but finally the culture started to change. There was some belief. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people lost their job because they didn't believe in us, wouldn't follow the rules and the guidelines. Uh, and we were given the autonomy to recruit, train, and hire those people that could follow the directions, follow the guidelines, and, uh, and, and do the job as it was designed to be. So let me ask you this. We're, we're sitting here again at Pinehurst, and we were just listening to a presentation about trust and how trusting yourself was the first step, I guess, to getting other people to trust you or into trusting others. So as you're navigating these waters that you haven't navigated before and you're trying to shift this culture, how much trust did you actually have in yourself that this outcome was the was the or this direction was the one you needed to go? Yeah, great, great question. And I've never been one not to really trust what I was getting involved in. Uh, we jumped in this with both feet. Uh, I knew it was the right thing to do. Had no idea how difficult it was going to be, uh, but I knew what we were doing was the right thing, and I knew it was what the client wanted, which was was more important. Uh, the client at Augusta National was. 110% in support of us and what we did and how we did things. Uh, they let the environment know that before we started. While we were started, they continued to come down and deliver that message, let them know that we were in control and in charge and we were going to do things the way that they had asked us to get them done and to jump off the middle of the fence and get on the right side of the fence and start following these guidelines. I I really didn't have any any doubts that we knew what we were doing Uh, uh the, the, the challenge was convincing the, the group mm-hmm. of people that we've got a better way. Yeah, and you really, I mean, one of the really unique things about you guys is you're in 32 sites or 30-ish different cultures, different clubs, and, and you've really re- recreated that culture across your platform. And was the, you know, was it basically the same formula? Yeah, another good question. We, we today have uh, about 1,800 caddies 
started with those 175. Of those 1,800, split about half and half with employment-based environments and the other half in independent contractor environments. Uh, the startup clubs that we were starting from scratch and didn't have to convert a program were totally different. We went in and recruited, trained, and hired people at that site, uh, brought them in, got to do the interview with them. Uh, they really didn't have any set way of doing things because it was all kind of new to them. Uh, they loved the game of golf. Uh, they had uh, the ability to provide service, uh, and it was much easier to mold them into what we were looking for than it was a takeover program. And of the first 32 sites we had, probably six to seven of them were takeover programs, and the other 25, six, seven were startup programs. So it was much easier for a startup program. So when you, when you started working with Scott, what was the 101 that you got? Wow, uh, there were a number of 101s. This, this was a real <laughs> blessing for us. Uh, uh, like I say, when we started, we knew nothing about this risk management and safety. We created uh, what we thought were the 10 basic safety techniques in the world of caddying. Uh, we implemented those. We had four by six displays in each of our caddy houses that talked about those safety techniques. Uh, uh, we were on the cutting edge of this industry. Uh, Jimbo and, and Ed and the Scott team didn't really have a cookie-cutter uh, answer for us because it was a, uh, a new industry, a diverse industry that uh, really hadn't been taken into the employment environment anymore, so they really didn't have any cookie-cutter uh, cookie recipes for us. We had to de develop our own job safety analysis, put them into play, uh, and, and I would say in probably... Uh, two years, we had that pretty well into place and had people looking at that and paying attention. Probably the biggest truth that the Scott team gave us, and I, I, can't, I can't emphasize this enough, was they told us that it was going to take um, at least two to three years to change the thought process, process and the culture of these individuals. And I can tell you today, it took three years. Mm. I think that's, a, that's an important message because it's one that I find myself, you know, we're telling clients this. And yet occasionally I'll go a quarter, you know, three months later, and I'll, I'll, I'll be frustrated because I think, man, this is just not moving as quickly yeah. as I hoped it would. And yet culture, cultural change takes so much time, and yet I think we often don't allow for it um, and, and give up. And so that's part of what uh, I'm interested in, um, which you've kind of elaborated on, is just the stick-with-itness that you had, um, you know, that you, you guys trusted in yourselves that, that you were heading in the right direction. Yeah, I can tell you that uh, uh, we recognized the baby steps. Uh, we lived on those baby steps. We, we piggybacked off those baby steps. Uh, we continued to pursue the long-term effectiveness of this. Uh, and I can tell the Scott team from a producer standpoint, in the background, the risk management people and the people where the, the rubber meets the road, they're really, really, really good at what they do sell that product, believe in that product, communicate with that product, uh, and you're going to see the results. So, uh, I mean, that's such a, I mean, obviously that's something that we want to hear and, and we're blessed to hear. What, what makes Tom Van Dorn believe in what we had to offer and then have such stickiness and grind to it? I mean... There are a lot of different ways to go about things, and 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 I think I I'm not speaking out of turn if I say you're a grinder, and and you you stuck with your guns and you you measured 
performance and you could have been easily distracted by some losses that you had, but you, you stuck with every time I went to a course with you, you had eyes on, are they living the values that we set forth? I remember, um, the last time we were down in, um, I think it's Ponte Vedra, mm-hmm. um, with the guy in the, in the tip. Yeah. So just talk about the stickiness and the belief and, and the grinding and, and, yeah, that, 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 that's a great point, and, and I can tell you that, that a lot of the things we were listening to today about trust and character, uh, if you remember, and I don't remember the exact date, but sometime in September or October 9, uh, 2004, you and Brett visited our office right here in Pinehurst, and you both sat in my office, uh, and I could feel the genuineness of you two. Uh, I, I've always felt that I was a pretty good judge of character. I didn't have any doubt about the truthfulness of what I was listening to. Uh, I knew it was going to be a, a cooperative effort of both of us continuing to get our nose dirty and keep it on the grindstone and continue to work through this. And I always got the feeling that you are going to be there with us right on the front lines. Uh, I can tell you prior to this, we did some work with Lockton in Kansas City. We did some work with J.W. Wortham in Houston as brokers and probably both good brokerages and both good insurance companies, but I never got the feeling that whomever was selling us that insurance was going to hold our hand and help us get through this like I did with you and Brett. Uh, And it ended up being with Claudia and Linda and Ed and everybody else on the team. Uh, I just just felt a genuine trust with who we were listening to. Uh, and it and it became easy as we as we kept going along, and probably allowed us and allowed me specifically to have more patience than I normally would have with that two or three two or three year window to get down the road and, and change this culture. Yeah, something you said earlier about questioning. I guess it's Mike before you guys took off mm-hmm. and jumped in with both feet, as you say. You know, when I when word got around that we were going to record a podcast with you, Linda and Claudia and it. They all were, they shot me these lengthy emails that outlined their relationship with you and how at the beginning it was, it was exhausting because you <laughs> asked so, so many questions. So talk a little bit about your, your curious nature and, and, um, yeah. and, and how those questions led you to the types of outcomes you guys had. Yeah, Jimbo, if you remember, uh, Mike told you and Brett, or I, I know Brett, at least before you left, that if we end up doing business together, please don't assign anybody but your best people to him because he'll drive them nuts. <laughs> and and I can I'll, I'll share a little story once we got into the captive uh, with Generations Group uh, uh, and how I was probably looked at as difficult when we started, uh, but I was, uh, I've, I've never been a person that is going to accept failure. Uh, wasn't always sure I was going to succeed, but some way somebody's going to have to beat me down on my knees and I wasn't going to be able to get up. And uh, we had a chance, uh, I can't remember what year, but we were at a captive insurance meeting in Chicago and we were at a Wrigley game. And if you name, remember the name Steve Ryder for yeah. ICS. Sure. We walked in there, and J.K., partner, business partner of mine, and I walked by, and I introduced myself to him, and his, these were the exact words out of his mouth. You don't look like an asshole to me. <laughs> he, had never, he had never met me, but had heard those, had heard those same stories. Uh, and J.K.'s comment off the cuff was, well, wait till you get to know him. But, uh, and, and come to, to, to no, we, can't, we became pretty good friends with Steve, played golf with him in Ireland at another uh, captive meeting. But uh, 
yeah, it was, uh, you know, I, I just wasn't going to fail. I just wasn't going to accept that, especially when I felt like we had a really, really, really good partnership, somebody that was going to help me get through this. I had somebody I could lean on. I had these guys' number on speed dial, and and like I'll tell you tomorrow, I, I can't tell you how many times I call Linda and Claudia and Jimbo and Ed and, and the team uh, to get the answers that I needed. Uh, but it was a real team effort, and I can tell you that Scott Insurance uh, and were, were the risk management team was with us every step of the way. So when you talk about culture and building, building and developing the culture, who, whose vision – I mean, where did the vision for what that culture looks like come from? I think that was a cooperative effort with our group. One of the things that I told our owner and our executive team when I opened my mouth and said I'd get involved in this and try to fix it, uh, I, real, I, I knew immediately that I couldn't do this by myself. It was bigger than I was. Uh, most things that I've ever done are bigger than I am, and I'm, I'm a true believer in you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. And we created a team of 12 risk management auditors and risk management supervisors that, that I had meetings with. And I, I got a real feeling that there was a genuine buy-in and they wanted to do this and wanted to jump in with both feet because it was the right thing to do. We had, uh, at the time, uh, 1,000 to 1,200 people working on a daily basis. And uh, it became very apparent to us that their safety was paramount to us. Even though we didn't have the same exposures that a lot of industry does with risk management and injuries, uh, like, like losing someone for six months due to an injury, having to recruit, train, and hire someone else. We simply had another part-time caddy that would come in and fill in that spot for three months. We didn't have to recruit, train, and hire. But we felt that it was the right thing to do to try to provide a safe work environment, show these people how to do this job safely, uh, and keep them out of harm's way. And so, so the average caddy coming to work, I mean, this was probably a whole new sort of concept to him or, or her that, you know, what are you talking about safety and risk management? I mean, I'm going to lap around a couple times in the golf course and hopefully pull out a couple hundred dollar tip. Yeah, uh, it, it certainly was. And uh, we, I spent a lot of time, uh, one of those early on years, looking at the potential types of exposures that a caddy that would put a bag on each shoulder, double bag caddy, uh, for two golfers uh, on an average day uh, around 18 holes of golf. And it ended up with our 10 safety techniques. They had an opportunity on a day like that to make 12,000 conscious right or wrong decisions relative to their safety. And I'm talking about everything from hydration from a 24-7 standpoint to sunscreen protection, uh, navigating uh, hills and, and, and preventing slips, twists, and falls, proper lifting techniques, proper riding techniques on golf carts. Uh, and, and there was 12,000 times a day that a caddy uh, that was double bagging, walking an 18-hole golf course, had an opportunity to make a conscious decision about his safety. Uh, and, and I can tell you with that many opportunities, our opportunities to teach and to look and to observe and to continue to have spot meetings was never ending. That sounds like managing your risk, knowing your risk and managing your risk to me. So why, you know, you guys are a company uh, that was growing quickly and adding new employees. Where do you find the time to focus on this and why is it important? Oh, there were a lot of hours put in, I can tell you. <laughs> there was, I created an environment, and my, my work ethic has always been like this, and I, I'm, I'm proud of that. Uh, I had my phone on for the rest of the managers that we were overseeing on 24-7, 365 days a year for 20 years. Uh, but 
there were a lot of long days. Uh, I can remember one time early on uh, at Augusta, I worked 55 straight days, a uh, minimum of 12 hours a day. Uh, but, I, but, but we knew in order to get to where we thought we could be that we needed to work those kind of hours, share that kind of, of, of work ethic with the rest of the group, the, the rest of the assistant managers and the, and the rest of the caddies, and let them know we were there for them. We believe in this. We're going to continue to pound at home until we don't have any injuries anymore. So how does a, how does a Mike Granuzzo um, view that time commitment, that investment from one of his key executives, really? Um, I, I don't think you dropped what else you were doing. <laughs> no. Uh, we, we didn't have a, an opportunity to let anything else slide. And there, the four of us that actually started this company after the first year, uh, luckily, were, were like-minded people. We knew it wasn't going to be easy. We knew it was going to be a lot of hours. Uh, and we all had that kind of work ethic. Uh, we all shared the same mentality that uh, regardless of what it took, we were going to make this thing work. We weren't going to let it fail. And, and, and day by day, it just, it just continued to come at us, and we just continued to work. Uh, maybe helped contribute to one of the, the reasons that after 20 years, I was pretty burned up and, and luckily had an opportunity to retire. But, uh, but we all had that work ethic. We knew it was going to be difficult, and nobody... Nobody really ever complained about it. It was never anything that whether you had to work on a weekend or work uh, at 8 o'clock till night. I can remember the first eight years at Augusta, I never was home for Thanksgiving for eight years. Busiest time of the year at the golf course. So I was there at 4 o'clock in the morning, didn't go home till 9 o'clock at night on Thanksgiving for eight years in a row. And it was, just, it was just part of the environment, part of the job, part of what needed to be done. How did building a, a risk management culture within Caddy Master transcend just making it a safer place to work? Well, you know, I'm not sure of, of the exact steps that, that probably created the, the biggest impacts on this ability, uh, but the caddies saw all the injuries that were happening early on. Uh, they were the ones that out there where the rubber's hitting the road, and they saw the golf balls come whizzing by the heads, and they saw the, the, the improper lifting techniques, and they saw caddies slip and fall and sprain their ankle or break their hip or whatever it was that happened. Uh, they started to see this. They started to believe that uh, maybe there is some exposure out here, and holy cow, I don't want to be the next guy to go down and, and, uh, and sprain an ankle or, or miss some work. Uh, and they all started to, to kind of pick up uh, pick up the ball for for the management and help each other. And we started to preach that in our spot meetings about looking out for each other. And if you see somebody doing something wrong, mention it to them. Uh, mention that you saw what you saw as a result of that going down the road or something that may have happened to you or maybe a near miss. Uh, and, and they kind of they, they started jumping on board after a couple years and helping each other and looking out for each other. And it became it became fun to watch uh, yeah. it, that, that, transi that transition. Because there's, I mean, if I remember correctly, I think one of the ca caddies don't really have a retirement plan. Um, and so you've got what, what was the age group of your caddies and a little bit of the messages. If you want to keep doing this till you're 85, um, you know, doing yeah. it the right way now is really important. Yeah, that, that, that is so important. Uh, there, this job is, is, uh, was prior to us getting involved in it, uh, this was these guys coming to work in the morning and getting the money in their hand that night. And I can tell you that 99% of them needed to borrow money the next day when they came to work. There was no such thing as, as saving. 
pay, payroll taxes, Social Security. There was nothing. And when we created this employment environment, uh, they certainly didn't know much about that, the majority of them. Uh, uh, but all of a sudden, they were... Uh, they were paying Social Security taxes. They were paying taxes. They were becoming more responsible, uh, and all of a sudden they had an opportunity. And, and we've got some. We've got a caddy today in Augusta, Georgia, that's 94 years old. He went 60 years of his work life as an independent contractor without an opportunity of even thinking about ever not working. Didn't have any opportunity to. And today we've got a number of caddies that have been working there now for 20, going on their 21st year, that have contributed to Social Security. And once. The old body gives out. They've got the opportunity now to at least get some semblance of income because of the last 20 years that they've been employed. Uh, but it was it was challenging. A, a lot of people can't see or don't look to tomorrow. Uh, it's all about today. If I get up tomorrow, we'll challenge tomorrow the way it is. But a lot of them didn't look down the road. Uh, and that became one of the fun things for us to educate them and let them know that uh, taking care of yourself today is, is going to be a lot easier on you tomorrow. I love it. You know, the, the one thing that, that sticks with me from this conversation is just how important it is to have a, a group of people who own it very well. Because you guys did an exceptional job, but I think the reality is you probably didn't have to go as hard. You could have had a very successful business without owning it to the de- degree that you did. Probably, but uh, one of the things, uh, like I said early on, we jumped into this with both feet. Uh, we believed in where it could go. We d- believed in the capabilities of it, and we didn't want to stop until we reached that pinnacle. And I'm not sure we have today. Uh, we're, we're, even though I've been out of the business now for 75, 80 days, uh, I know they're still working as hard as, as they ever did, and, and we just we believe there's still a better way to go. And the thing I appreciate about that is that that's a large part of our risk performance platform is, hey, we could get by, frankly, with bringing on a lot of clients and and living with the status quo, and we would be very successful. Many do it. And one thing Richard Simmons said today during his talk was, do the hard things, and those are the things that you'll find most satisfaction with. And so tell me now, sitting here 60 days, 80 days out of retirement, how do you feel about your career knowing that you put it all out there? Well, it's... (laughs) Uh, still looking at that on a day-to-day basis, uh, uh, kind of looking back and reminiscing on things. But uh, uh, I, I'm proud of what we've done. Uh, I'm happy the way it, it turned out. Uh, I can see a, a ton of individuals who benefited from that, and that makes me very, very happy. Uh, I've seen a lot of people that today are 65 to 70 years old that are still catting because for the last 20 years they've started to take care of themselves in a different way, uh, and they're still able to do this job. Uh, it's been very rewarding. Uh, uh, the hard work has paid off. I never, I've not, I've never would look back on this and say, wow, I wish I would have done it some other way. We did it as hard as we could, as long as we could. Uh, and, and we're happy about that. And, and I would just, I would add to that legacy, just making the Scott team better. And, um, by challenging us and by asking the tough questions of us and by not, not accepting the status quo, um, and pushing us, but reinforcing us along the way, because um, for someone who is so kind to ad- adopt our direction, it, it, it fills us up, and uh, and and we we use you as an example with a lot of others as to, um, you know, this is sort of this is this is our map, this is our route, um, and so we we appreciate the heck out of that. 
well, I'm sure I stepped on some toes along the way, and I've never been politically correct with everything I've done, but uh, I'm, I'm a black and white guy, and there's really no gray in my world. Uh, like I said, we jumped into this with both feet. I knew I, ha- I just had a great feeling about knowing we had a great partner in Scott, uh, somebody that would be there for everything we needed, and I can tell you that uh, they have been, uh, and we, there's, there's no way we could have done this uh, without Scott. There's, yeah. just, there's just no way. We, we, I didn't know enough about it. Uh, we would have spent a ton of money uh, bringing somebody in from the outside to try to, to do this, but if they didn't really understand the culture and the business uh, that we were trying to do, I'm not sure they could have ever uh, achieved the results that we did. Well, well, Linda and Claudia and Ed both say, hello, they miss you, and they loved working with you. So thank you for... Uh, thank you. For, I'm not going to let them off the hook. Oh, you're not going to let no, them go No, yet. just because we like to have fun with this, and, <laughs> and there are lots of good caddy stories to tell. So just just leave us with a good caddy story. <laughs> oh, boy, there's so many of them. Um, uh, my, my favorites come from Augusta. I... Well, that, 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 that'll play I'll, well, too. I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this. We had a caddy whose name was Frank Ware, caddy number 105. His nickname was Skinny. He was uh, probably f- early 50s when I got a chance to meet him and take over as his employer. Uh, one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. He could walk up and down the hills of that golf course like nobody you'd ever seen. One day, uh, we got the 911 call uh, in the office, and I heard it go through to the uh, emergency response team on the grounds that Skinny had gone down. Uh, I get emotional every time I tell this, but Skinny had gone down, leaving the 11th green, heading to the 12th tee, and was unconscious. And I can tell you, by the time the ambulance got there, the head pros were down there, the director of golf was down there. Uh, I had gotten there by that time. Finally, the... the, um, the uh, responders got skinny uh, alert. One of them was trying to get blood out of his finger. They couldn't get any blood out of his finger to find out, to, to start doing some blood work as they transported him to the hospital. He appeared to be alert, awake, and okay. The assistant pro, who knew Skinny very well, leaned down to Skinny and asked him what he had had for breakfast this morning. And Skinny turned around and looked at him just as serious as anybody you'd ever heard in your life. And he looked at him with a little smile on his face. A six-pack of Bud was his answer. (laughs) (laughs) And and needless to say, Skinny was back on the grass the next day. Uh, One of my favorites. Uh, I love the guy to death, and uh, I'll never forget him. That's awesome. Tom, thanks again for the time, and and congratulations on the legacy you've left there and here at at, – it's Scott. Thank well, thank you. you. I'll, I'll never forget Scott. They've been a great part, the best partner that I've ever had in my 45 years of business, and uh, thank you very much for what you guys do. Everybody, hope you enjoyed. We will catch up with you next week or the week after. Take care.